Shalom, and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. And again, I give all praises to the Most High Yah and His Son, Yahushua, the Hamashiach, who came and died for all of our sins. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington, and we are the Science of the Covenant. And as you join us today, we will be continuing our study on the Mark of the Beast. If you have any questions or comments during this podcast while we are live, you can email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com and we will try and get to your question and read your comment on air. So, Pastor, what more in the study of the Mark of the Beast will we be dealing with today? Okay, we want to <clears throat> continue to uh, progress to the line of the beast in Revelation 13 as we look at the kingdoms. And so our study today will primarily deal with the identification of the beast. We want to see what that beast is about. And as we look at that, then we'll uh, get closer to what the mark is. But we want to see how other kingdoms uh, that the Bible is talking about. Because before we get to the mark of the beast, what we find in Revelation is that the mark is supposed to come through the image of the beast, but we want to see where the image got its information. And then when we can understand the historical perspective of what we are dealing with, then when we deal with the mark, I think it will be much more understood than just trying to deal with the mark alone. So that's what we'll be dealing with, the identification of the beast. So at this time, let us pray. Eternal Father, as we have gone through the teachings of the Mark of the Beast, as far as the historical perspective, we pray that we may be able to understand the various empires that have come up upon the face of the earth and how thy people has been affected by the other nations. And as we look at that, we can see and understand that what we are dealing with today is what others have dealt with in times of old. Give us understanding, and most of all, give us the application of the things within our hearts that we can prepare ourselves to be what you would have us to be. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen and amen. I want to turn back to the book of Revelation and look at chapter 13, and I want to look at the first two verses and kind of go back into that. It said, And I stood upon the sand, of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw like was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. So here we're trying to look at the identification of the beast. And thus far, we have identified some of the imagery of these verses. However, what we want to consider is that John tells us that this beast had seven heads, ten horns with ten crowns, and, his, and upon his heads, the name blasphemy. Now, 
already we have learned that these heads and horns with crowns are kings and rulers. And if this beast have seven heads, then how do we correlate these seven heads to the seven kings? Now, when we identify, <clears throat> when we identify uh, in verse two that these this composite beast represented at least three kings and their empires, we discovered that the leopard, the bear, and the lion, respectively, represent Alexander the Great of the Grecian Empire and Darius and Cyrus over the Medio, the Median and the Persian Empire, and Nebuchadnezzar over the Babylonian Empire. So when we look at these uh, parts of beasts and what they represent, they go all the way back to the book of Daniel who told us about the lion, the bear, and the leper. However, when we view these rulers and their empires, there are a few concerns we want to consider. And the first consideration is why are these kingdom beasts mentioned in part rather than in whole? In the book of Daniel, these beasts are mentioned along with their details. Could there be an explanation as to why one is presented as a whole and the other as a part? We refer to this part of our uh, discourse as the synecdoche the synecdo, synecdo key, the synecdo key revelation. Now let us define what we mean by a synecdo key. The words comes from an English word, synecdo key, which is a figure of speech by which a part of a thing represents the whole, and vice versa. So when we look at the synecdochia revelation, in the synecdochia revelation, it, it deals, it is by that which John is shown various kingdoms and kingdoms, he mentions only a part of a beast which represents a king, or an empire. So when we deal with a synecdoche, it is primarily just taking something from the whole of something. And then by understanding what the part is, then we understand the whole. Okay. So we want to be able to see why he used only a part. So we asked the question, is there a rationale for doing this what John is doing when Elohim revealed to him, just at a surface glance as to why only a portion of a beast is given rather than the whole of a beast may be because those to whom he was writing had a knowledge of these beastly empires and that by mentioning only a portion of each of them, they would have 
understood what John was portraying. Now, even though we could go through a lot of speculative reasoning as to why only a portion of these beasts uh, was mentioned, were mentioned, yet one thing is evident, and that is not only in this passage of Scripture did he write in this way, but also in other passages of the book of Revelation, he does sim uh, a, a similar approach. Let us look at a few examples of a synecdoche being used in the writings of the book of Revelation. When we consider the fact that there are a plethora of synecdoches uh, of which we may not discern just by a casual reading, let's notice some of them in the following texts of Scripture found here in the book of Revelation. Let us look in the book of Revelation at Revelation chapter 2. Now we want to look at uh, verse number 7, Revelation 2, 7. And here, when we read in the seventh verse of the second chapter of Revelation, it says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of Elohim. Okay, now when you look at that text, it says, it talks about the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of Elohim. Now, when you consider the fact that he's talking about the tree of life and in the midst of the paradise of Elohim, what is this referring to? Well, if we turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and when we look at Genesis chapter 2, and we look at verse number 9, what we read is, it said, And out of the ground, Yehoah, Elohim, uh, made to grow every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what we are looking at here is a look at the Garden of Eden. So when he mentioned the tree of life, he's talking about the Garden of Eden, but he didn't give us the whole garden. He just alluded to it by saying the tree of life. So if we have the tree of life, it is just a portion of the garden, but it represents the whole garden. Okay. Now, another synecdoche is found in Revelations chapter 3, and verse 11, it says, Behold, I come quickly, hold fast that which thou hast, that, that no man take thy crown. Okay. So when we talk about a crown, a crown is a part of a king's attire. And even though it is a part, it represents a king. Okay. So when he talks about let nobody take your crown, He's really talking about no man, let no man take your kingship. Now, let us read in Revelation 1 and verse 6. 
Revelation 1, 6 says, and hath made us kings and priests unto Elohim, his father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here in Genesis, I mean, not Genesis, but Revelation 1, 6, it speaks about him making us kings when he died and shed his blood for us that we became, he made us kings as we accept that blood. And that blood is the royal blood of the prince, which is Yeshua, who is the son of the father. And he says here in Revelation 3.11, let no one take your crown. In other words, don't let anybody take your kingship. So the, synec the synecdoche is crown. It's only a part of the king's attire. But when you talk about a crown, you're talking about a king. Okay, let's use uh, one more synecdoche. There's plenty of them in the book of Revelations that when John writes, it's not something that should uh, be astonishing to us because this is, this is how it was revealed to him. So here in Revelation 19, verse 11, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now, one of the things about a horse in the Bible, a horse represents an army. Elohim told his kings in the Torah not to multiply horses. Let us turn to that text in, in the Torah where it talks about multiplying horses. That's found in the book of Deuteronomy. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17. And in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, uh, we want to, let me see. We want to use a verse 16, Deuteronomy 17, 16. Okay, so here it's talking about horses. All right, here it says in the 16th verse of the 17th chapter of Deuteronomy, here Elohim, when he gave the Torah, he said, but he shall not, in other words, talking about his kings and his rulers, he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as Yahuwah, has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. In other words, he was telling in many words that his kings were not to multiply horses. And one of the reasons for that, he was letting them know that he was their king and he could take care of them. But by just mentioning horses, then we know it's talking about war. Okay. So when he talks about horses in Revelation, it is talking about uh, war. Now, if you remember when Yeshua was here on earth and he was coming in to Jerusalem just before the Passover in which he was about to be crucified, the Bible says he rode in on a mule or some call it a donkey. But when he rode on a donkey or a mule, then that meant he was coming in peace but when one rode on a horse, it meant that he was coming for war. So in the book of Revelation, when we see the Son of Man coming on a horse, 
It means he's coming for war. So there are a number of synecdoches John employs in the book of Revelation, and we shouldn't, and it shouldn't be strange that in this passage in Revelation 13, 13, 2, that it isn't doing anything out of the ordinary that he has not been already doing. Consequently, if we stand upon the premise that these parts of the beast represents the whole, then what possible lessons can we learn from this? So let us revisit our text in Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2. Let us go back to those texts. So here it says uh, in, in verse 1 that the beast had seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon their heads was the name blaspheme. And then number uh, verse 2 talks about uh, the beast that he saw was like a leper, and his feet as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Okay. So when we look at that text, we find a composite beast. We don't find one beast, but we find it's different from Daniel. Daniel looked at him separately, but here in the book of Revelation is revealed that all of them are together in, in various parts. So here we have a beast with seven heads. And without reading any further, let us consider who are these seven heads by focusing upon two, uh, two of them in Revelation 13. So here again, we have been given at least three kings and their kingdoms and let us define them again, and we'll have the following. A leopard's body representing Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire. The feet as, a, as of a bear representing Darius and Cyrus, rep- respectively, rulers of Media and Persia. And the mouth of a lion representing Nebuchadnezzar, the sovereign over Babylon. Now, if we draw the conclusion thus far that these three kings are being spoken of here, then we must also draw the conclusion that these three kings would naturally make up three of the seven heads of which this beast possessed. So if it had seven heads, and here it's talking about three kings, then three of the heads are being represented by three kingdoms, which would be Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. (coughs) Now, what we notice particularly about these three kings is that at least two of them had a divine intervention of some kind. Okay, now, what we want to do is look at these kingdoms, at least these two that we're referring to, and we want to go to the book of Daniel. Now, here in the book of Daniel, we want to go to uh, Daniel chapter 3. All right, Daniel chapter 3, and we want to look at a couple of verses in the third chapter of Daniel 3. Okay. 
Now, here we read in Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 24 and 25. And here we are told, reading in verse 24 of the third chapter of the book of Daniel, then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he spake, and he said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. And he answered and he said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the son of Elohim. Okay. So Daniel says that uh, in this book, when that was a decree to do a certain thing, that if they didn't do it, they were put in the fiery furnace. So Daniel put Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah into the fiery furnace because they did not go according to his decree or his command. But when he looked in there, he said he, they put three, but there was four. Okay, let's hold that thought. Now, when we look at uh, the sixth chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, and we want to look at a, a few verses there as well, Daniel 6, and we want to consider verses 20 uh, down through 22. Now, this is what this is what it says in Daniel chapter 20. Not ja Daniel chapter 20, but Daniel chapter 6, and starting with verse 20. It said, And we he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable, lamentable, lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living Elo Elohim, is thy Elohim, whom thou serve, continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. For my Elohim has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. So what we are looking at here, under Nebuchadnezzar, it was the fiery furnace encounter. Under Darius, it was the lion's encounter. What we want to point out about these two encounters is that the reason for Daniel and his companions Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were respectively put in the lion's den and the fiery furnace was because they were found in violation of a command or decree given by the king. So, so in Babylon, in the Babylonian Empire, it was the golden image set up by Nebuchadnezzar for all the subjects of his empire to worship. And in the Persian empire, it was a decree that Darius was, was flattered into making that no person could worship any other 
God or El decide Darius himself. And if they would worship any other de deity other than uh, Darius, then they would be put into the lion's den. And in Nebuchadnezzar's command, if they didn't fall down and worship the image that he had set up, then they were put into the fiery furnace. So what these scenarios are telling us is one basic factor is that in these kingdoms, laws were constructed which were both a violation of a person's beliefs and a violation of one's conscious convictions. And we want to keep this in mind for future reference when we deal with the mark of the beast, it will come from the ruling body of the government. That's where it would come from. Moreover, what we will also notice is that in both the command and the decree came with a death decree. See, in the Babylonian Empire, it was a death decree if you didn't do what the king says. And in the Persian Empire, it was a death decree if you didn't do what the emperor said. So the death decree will be associated with the mark of the beast as well. So we want to keep that in mind. Moreover, it was classical Greek that brought about a literary language to the world that was to be able to extend the spread of the gospel message because we noticed that the Grecian Empire is what gave uh, Hellenistics uh, organization or Hellenistic culture to the world. So when we look at the Hellenistic culture of the world, it was the Greek culture that did this. It is said that Yahshua came in the fullness of time. Let's go to the book of Galatians. Let's go, go to Galatians. In the book of Galatians, we want to look at the fourth chapter and also the fourth verse, Galatians 4.4. 4. Okay, now here in Galatians 4.4, 4, it says, but when the fullness of the time was come, Elohim sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, one of the things that we want to look at, or one of the interpretations, is that it was saying when the fullness of time had come. Okay, So we want to look at this fullness of time. So one of the interpretations of the fullness of time was that the Roman law was the highest judicial system of government upon the earth at that time. The Greek language was the most coveted spoken and written language of its time, and the Jewish faith was the most significant at this time in history as far as spiritual substance. As a matter of fact, it was Yeshua who was crucified by Pilate orders that he put on the crucifix concerning why Yeshua was put to death. So let us turn to John. 
John, the 19th chapter, the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we want to look at uh, chapter 19, John 19th chapter. Okay. Now here in the 19th chapter of John, we want to look at verses 19 and 20. Okay. So when Yeshua was being put to death under the governor, Pontius Pilate, it says in verse 19 of the 19th chapter of John, and Pilate wrote a title and he put it on the cross and the writing was Yeshua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Yeshua was crucified was nigh unto the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and Latin. So when he put on that cross Yeshua, the king of the Jews, or as the scripture says, Yeshua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and they told him to take that sign down and put not that he was a king of the Jews, but that he say he was a king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. But the point that we are looking at is he, is, he wrote it or had it written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And the violation or the reason why he was being put to death is because uh, they were saying that he said uh, he was the king of the Jews. See, it wasn't the fact that he did anything wrong. It wasn't the fact that uh, they let Barabbas go free and they incarcerated Yeshua in his place. In other words, the only thing that they could find was that he said he was the king of the Jews. And so this is what the penalty was of why they nailed him to the cross. Okay. Now we find a similar language here in the 23rd chapter of the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 23, and we're looking at verse number 38. Luke 23, 38 says, And a superscription also was written over him, and the letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew, this is the king of the Jews. So even though uh, Luke has a different order of the languages, he still points out that Greek, Latin, and Hebrew was what they had in order to point out that he was being killed because he said he was the king of the Jews. Now, the point that we are trying to establish is simply this, that when you look at Daniel, when you look at his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and when you look at Yeshua under the Roman Empire, under the Greek influence, because when many of the Greeks accepted the teachings of the Messiah, then we notice that most 
of the New Testament has been written in Greek because the Greeks were accepting this. They wrote it in Greek, okay? So we see basically that all of these kingdoms had reached a point that they had become the person to tell others how to worship. This is why over here in America, which is different from Europe, that they came over here to establish a religion that was not governed by the state or the king so they could worship the way that they wanted to. But now the image of the beast is coming in and doing the same thing that they did in Babylon. They had to worship the way that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to worship. And then when Cyrus, who was, he was flattered, see, he was flattered that when his uh, cabin came to him or when those who were working with him came to him and say, well, you know, uh, Cyrus, not Cyrus, but Darius, why don't we make a law that for 30 days nobody worships anybody but you? And that looked good to him. That looked good. But, <clears throat> but when he made the law, he found out that, wait a minute, the reason why they made that law, they weren't trying to get me. They were trying to get Daniel. So he said, no, we can't kill Daniel. And they said, no, uh, King, you have to go through with it because according to the laws of the Medes and the Pers Persians, once you make a law, you can't change it. That's it. And so he had to go through with it. But once he went through with it, what happened was that those who tried to get Daniel that once he found out Daniel was alive down in the lion's den, he said, pull him out. And when they pulled him out, he said, now take these men and put them into the lion's den. And the Bible says when he put them, when he put those men along with their families and children, with, with their wives and children into the lion's den, it said even before they touched the ground, the lions had consumed them. So what we are looking at is basically it's going to reach a time that we are not only voting presidents and emperors and kings uh, put in office. They will reach the point that they want worship. And if we don't follow them like Daniel and his companions and like Yeshua didn't go along with the Roman government, it's going to be the same thing with us when we deal with the image of the beast, that they're going to have laws, and attached to those laws are going to be death decrees. And with the death decree, that meant that if you do not follow, then what will happen is that you will have to experience death. So just as Yeshua, our Savior, was put to death under the judicial government of Rome, under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate's death decree, so will Rome again put to death those who would oppose their authority by worshiping contrary to their dictates. So what we have is basically, this is the reign we have basically in the book, turning back to the book of uh, Revelation, the 13th chapter, we want to see what we have basically, basically there. We have this. When we look at Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2, when it talks about the seven kingdoms, let's look at those seven kingdoms. 
So what we have is basically when it talks about the lion's mouth, that's the reign of Babylon. And when we talk about the feet of the bear, that's the reign of Medio Persia. And when we uh, talk about the uh, the the, the uh, well, we have when we talk about the feet of the bear, that's Medio Persia. And when we talk about the leopard's body, that's the Grecian Empire. Okay, so thus far, when we talk about the seven heads of the beast, the first three here, we are talking about Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Now, the reign of the pagan Rome, now pagan Rome came up after Greece. Now, why do we call it pagan Rome? Pagan Rome was a, was a type of... Uh, uh, a, a nation that did not have a belief system, okay? And that's why they called it pagan Rome, okay? But that was the fourth, uh, that was the fourth kingdom, all right? Then what happened is that when Rome came into existence, which was the fourth kingdom, you also came again uh, to a time when we had communism or atheism, and atheism was coming from Russia, and we called it back then USSR. And so when we deal with that, we are dealing with a, another kingdom, which if you, call, you look at Babylon, Medio Persia, Greece, and Rome, those are four kingdoms. And the communistic power was the fifth kingdom. And when communism was overcome, then what we had is the coming of the reign of Rome again. But only this time, when Rome came into existence after having a setback, then they called it paper Rome. And paper Rome was because now they had accepted a belief system. In other words, they were not only a nation, but they were also a belief. And when they had those beliefs, they felt that if they accepted in their empire what most of their people were accepting, then they could both rule how they believed and they could also rule the government. So when they came in then, that made them the sixth ruling power. But when Rome attempts again the second time to be the ruler of the world, they are trying to establish a one world government, then that would be the seventh kingdom. So you got paper Rome, and then you got uh, pagan, you, you, you have pagan Rome, and then you have uh, paper Rome, and paper Rome is under a belief system, and with that belief system, they're going to have a mark to be able to identify all of those who are part of their kingdom, and if you're not a part of that kingdom, then there will be a death decree to go forth in order to stifle your belief, and if Rome continues, then Rome will try to wipe out all of those who have not 
the mark of the beast. But we find that as we study these prophecies, that there is going to be an intervention of the Son of Man to be able to vindicate his people. But what we want to see is in these seven kingdoms, all of these kingdoms are responsible for a death decree if you do not worship according to the way they want you to worship. So here we have seven kingdoms, which four has reigned already, and three of them is yet to reign. And when the seventh comes to reign, it will be to promote the one world government. And when the one world government will also come the mark of the beast. And so next week, we'll try to get more into the mark of what the papal system will give us rather than to be able and to be able to see how the mark that they would give is going to have consequences just like the idols that they set up in Nebuchadnezzar's day and also the decree that was given by Cyrus in his day that the mark of the beast will also have its consequences as well. So we'll stop there. If you are listening live and you have any questions or comments, you can email us now at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. And we will try to get your comment and your question uh, to the pastor uh, today. That's again, scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. So uh, you said the four kingdoms that have already reigned, was it, it was Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece and pagan Rome. Right. Okay. Uh, so those are the four that has already come and gone. Uh-huh. But now remember Rome was never overthrown. Okay. Rome, R- Rome was divided, uh-huh. but no, nobody ever overthrew Rome. So Rome continued, but as it continued, it became a beast power in the sense that it embraced a belief system. Mm-hmm. And so, it became another kingdom. So when we when we look at the seven kingdoms, Rome plays a part in at least three of those kingdoms. Oh, so Rome plays a part in three of them. Mm-hmm. So you have you have pagan Rome, mm-hmm. which is they didn't have a belief system. Yeah. But when many of the people in the Roman Empire began to accept the, what we call the Christian faith, then Rome was turning Christian. So all of Rome, under the Neros and the uh, Augustus and, 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 and the Caesars, when they got to the throne, they, they were swearing, well, if they're turning this way, we better embrace the religion. So even though it was the same nation, it became another kingdom. So you have, you have the papacy, once they had accepted a religion, uh-huh. the first papacy is what we was reading about in the, in, over in Europe. Now, if you remember over in Europe, the beast that came up out of the sea was over in Europe. That was the Rome, but that was that was the first papacy. But the second papacy uh, that we are seeing, uh, it, it came, uh, uh, w- in other words, after Rome had come up, it's going to come up again in the sense that when they start the New World Order, the same papacy that did his thing over in Europe, 
when it's tied to New World Order, they want to do the same thing. And what is that? They want everybody to worship according to the way they want it, not the way that people believe. That's what was happening over in Europe. This is why they came to America, because they were getting persecuted because they were reading the Bible and worshiping the way they felt that Elohim was teaching them, not the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church came up, and they was kind of curtailed them to worship the same way. But then when we saw that beast to come up out of the earth, that was the people escaping from Europe coming over to America. But this same image of the beast in America will eventually take over and be taken over by the dragon, which was leading the beasts over in Europe. Mm -hmm. They would speak the same thing till now those who are over in America to be able to worship according to the beast. Yeah, so when we look at beast one over in Europe, and mm -hmm. then the image over here, but the same image over in Europe is going to be the same voice speaking through the religions over here today. In order to form the one world government, they will say uh, that the Pope is over the whole religion or over the whole belief system, and he is also over the world. Yeah, and if you ha haven't listened to our podcast on the Mark of the Beast and let's talk about one world religion, we discussed about things of the one world religion that's going on now to see what's things to come. Um, now, you said uh, the leopard represented Alexander the Great. Mm -hmm. Greece, yeah. The lion, Nebuchadnezzar. And what mm -hmm. was the third one? Well, that was the uh, that was the uh, of the Persian Empire under uh, well, actually, the Medes and the Persians. Uh -huh. They are the ones that overcame the Babylonian Empire, and that was under the uh, uh, Alexander. The, let me see. No, that was under the Bear, uh, which was uh, that that was the uh, the Medes and the Persians. That was the Bear, and when when Cyrus. And Darius got together, they overcame the Babylonian Empire, and that was represented by the bear. Okay, so they were they was represented by uh Medio Persia was represented by the bear. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now in uh when you talked about in Deuteronomy the seventeenth chapter, verse sixteen, um, what does it mean what did it mean to multiply horses and also when it talked about let me bring that back up when he talked about um nor caused the people to return to Mitzrayim was that a reference of saying that the children of Israel would not return into captivity no well in context of what he's saying if they return to Egypt a lot of times uh, even when Solomon, you know, uh, and many of the rulers, when they got ready for horses, they go down to Egypt because Egypt sold them chariots and they sold horses down there uh -huh. in order in order to prepare for war. So when they would return to Egypt, uh, they would be returned to get the horses and stuff in order to multiply the horses. See, he told his kings they shouldn't multiply horses, uh -huh. just like he told them they should not multiply wives. Okay, but when Solomon got on the throne, he did both of them. He multiplied wives and horses. 
But, in other words, he was preparing for war, but Elohim was saying he was their protector. They didn't have to do that, but they violated the Torah by doing it. So, okay, so multiplying horses is basically a saying, you know, they was preparing for war. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he, he was saying basically you shouldn't be looking to go to war. Well, not so much they weren't looking to go to war, but it, they should be looking for him to give the protection. When, okay. they, came out, when they came out of Egypt, they, who, who protected them? They didn't have yeah. no horses down in Egypt when they came out. Yeah, true. He protected them. So all of a sudden, they came out of Egypt. He can't protect them. <laughs> yeah. And then he told them, I want to be your king. But then they turned around and said, well, we want a human king. Yeah. As if he couldn't be their king. So they, they messed up all around. They didn't want him to be the king. They got Saul, the first king. Then they started multiplying horses and... A lot of times when they did that, they still lost because they were not following the Torah. But when they followed the Torah, even though they were outnumbered, he still fought their battles for them. Mm. And this is one of the things that we have to learn in the end of time is that we have to put our full trust in him. We cannot trust in horses or the military, the martial law and all that. We cannot put our trust in there. The government of man will, but we have to put our trust in him. True. True. And before we go into our next segment, um, I noticed uh, when you was reading the verse uh, about Yahushua being about to be crucified, and it says he was the king of Yehuda <coughs> mm-hmm. or Judah. What about the rest of Israel? Is it was he just specifically the king for Judah? Or does Judah encompasses Israel also? Yeah, at this time in history, uh, you know, the Jews and uh, and Israel all together. In other words, when you look at the etymology of the word Judah, uh, when you trace it all the way back down, uh, that was one of the sons of uh, of Leah. Remember, Leah had the fourth, her first child, that was Judah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so but he was just only one of the sons uh, of the twelve that Jacob Jake, Jacob had. And so pretty soon, Judah, as Judah began to grow, and he married, and uh, he had children. And then pretty soon, you not only had Judah as a son, but now there was a certain territory that was also named Judah. Okay. And so it goes from a person to a geographical location. And then uh, it not only extended from there from actually a person in a geographical location. Then, if you remember, under Solomon, Solomon had all 12 of the uh, the tribes, or all 12 of the nations. Mm -hmm. And one of the nations was uh, Judah. Okay? But now Israel had Israel was over all of the 12, so therefore you call it Israel because he was over the 12. But then when uh, his people, Israel, did not follow what he wanted wanted him to do, then he let Solomon know that he was going to divide the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And in dividing the kingdom, he would have uh, a split in such a way that when Rehoboam, which was the son of Solomon, when Solomon died, took over, they were about to fight uh, because Judah was under the influence of uh, 
uh, uh, uh, well, actually, you had Israel and you had uh, all of the other tribes. They were together. But when they did not go according to the covenant that Elohim wanted, he let them know he was going to divide the kingdom. And so Rehoboam, he told him, you were going to get two tribes, which would be the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, those two tribes. And those two tribes would be called the tribe of Judah. And then the other ten, the other ten tribes, they would be up north, and they would call that Israel. Uh-huh. So you had Judah and Israel. It was a split in the sons or the nations because they did not follow his Torah. So he said, for David's sake, I will not take all of the kingdoms from, uh, from Solomon, but under Rehoboam, I will split the kingdom. So Rehoboam would have two. Uh-huh. Israel under Rehoboam would have ten. And so what we're trying to do now uh, in our day is bring the house of Judah and the house of Israel back together. But in Yeshua's day, it was still Judah that was reigning, but it also included Israel as well. Uh-huh. So what we are looking at is a divided kingdom. And so Judah became the name for all of Elohim's people. This is why when Yeshua was talking to the woman at the well, he said to her, he said, woman, you don't know what you believe. He said, we who are of the Jews, we know what we believe. Uh-huh. So he pointed out specifically the Jews. So when he said he died uh, for being the king of the Jews, he was talking about all of his people. But that was just the name that they were using at that time. Okay. All right. Very good. I learned a lot from there. Now we go into our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. <laughs> Well, today in the Let's Talk About It segment, I want to talk about genetically modified humans. Yes, genetically modified humans. And before I get started, I just want to read one verse because it kind of, uh, to me, tells us what's going to happen and what has happened previously. And many of you probably have already heard this verse and know it by heart. And it's Luke seventeen twenty six, And it reads, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the son of Adam. And we know in the days of Noah, it was a lot of wickedness. We had the Nephilim. We knew the evil angels um, was mixing things genetically. And I believe, and this is just me, you may believe differently, but I believe the dinosaurs was the result of beasts of Satan messing with genetics and DNA. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard recently, there have been two major transplants from a pig. One man has received a pig's heart. Another man has received or person has received a pig's kidney. Now, if you know anything about genetics, when a person gets an organ transplant, it has to match up or else the body is going to reject it genetically. So that's why you see people that's on the organ donor list for many years, because they're looking for a specific match. So you have to start to think 
what has to happen genetically for a human to receive a pig's organ and for the body to accept it? So as I started to read and dig, I came across an article in the Newsweek that was talking about genetically modified humans. Now, I know a lot of us recall GMOs because a lot of food packaging we see, no GMO, which means no genetically modified organisms. Well, it gets a little bit deeper from there as I start to read and look a little bit further. And I know I've talked about this many a times, but in this day and age, things are starting to connect together that we never really thought about. And when we look at this vaccine for the supposed COVID pandemic, I think a lot of this has to do with that because you have to turn for that body to accept the pig organs. You have to genetically change the pig genetically and also the human genetically. And so as I started to read, I want to read a little bit of excerpts about this article that I ran across that talked about uh, humans and uh, GMO DNA that I found on the Internet. Now, like I said, you don't have to believe me. I do say you should do your own research and do your own um, studying and see what you find for you. So I'm reading from this article called Genetically Modified Human Beings that I found on the BDC, B-I-N-C, or not, not public address website. And part of it reads, this injection of mRNA, which we know is, most of these vaccines uh, has M- are made from are from mRNA. From genetically modified organisms, DNA is not a vaccine. It is biotechnology. It is illegal gene modification that is designed to turn humans into a genetically modified organisms. Genetically modified organisms, organisms in which genetic material material has been altered in a way that does not occur naturally. The introduced foreign genetically modified mRNA is hijacking a normal cell and telling it to make proteins it would not make naturally. The process is called transduction, and if successful, the recipient of the introduced new genetically modified organism now has cellular instructions to make spike proteins from the genetically modified DNA that had was transcribed to mRNA. And in our microbiome where bacteria outnumbers our cells, the transcription and the translation of genetically modified mRNA can occur simultaneously. Now, if you ever saw pictures of the supposed COVID vaccine, what does it have? It has spikes, and I believe they said they are the spikes protein. Now, it also says the vaccine vaccination plan is a genetically modified organism trial being done on non-humans ending in 2023, and is primarily it is unlawful medical experimentation. That's what this one guy says. The GMA mRNA injection for a new deadly disease has yet to be proven is not a vaccine. As it is a trial phase 
the information is not known about its safety, efficacy, but to date, many have died from the injection and many who have injected still get a cold and flu, so it's neither safe nor effective. Now, these things have to happen. Your body has to be changed genetically for them to start harvesting organs and, pl- and from different things. And I think we are moving towards a time where science and technology are starting to uh, merge. And as I did a little bit more digging, I believe all this genetically changing the DNA has been done previous years because I don't know if any of you remember in 1984, Loma Linda University transplanted a baboon heart into a young baby that was born and the baby was it was born in October and died in November. It lived after the transplant. I think it was around 21 days. Now, when you get into like a lot of television and movies, you see today, you see these superheroes like Captain America, uh, Cyborg from DC Comics in the movies, RoboCop. And you start to see science and humanism and technology starting to merge. And even in the, one of the movies, the X-Men, you see how they was giving them some type of injection to change their DNA. And what I'm saying is this, that we are starting to see that a lot of these things we thought was fiction are probably are really facts that is going on and occurring. That they are trying to change our genetic code to make us superhuman and whatnot. So, Pastor, I have a question. Is getting an animal part for survival a sin, especially when it comes to getting an animal organ from an unclean animal that Yah has stated that is unclean. Okay, well, your your question brings much more in focus, you know, than whether it's a sin or not, but uh, I'm going to approach this from a few angles. Uh, when you say, is it a sin? Okay. Well, when you look at uh, taking animal parts, be they clean animals or unclean. I don't. I don't think he. I don't think there's a specification of taking bodily parts mm-hmm. from an animal and put it in a person. Are we saying that if it's clean, it's okay to do it, but if it's unclean, it's not okay to do it? Okay, let's look at something that is basic first, and then we'll kind of go into it. The, the question is very comprehensive. It needs not a surface answer, but we need to understand, you know, uh, about what you're asking. Mm -hmm. Now, if we go to Genesis chapter 1, and we look at uh, verse 11, the Bible says in Genesis 1-11, it says, And Elohim said, Let the earth bring forth grass, herb, yelling seed, and fruit trees, yelling fruit after its kind whose seed is within itself, and it was so. Okay, now, that was a principle that was established uh, in, in, in the botanical world, in the world of plants, okay? Okay. And then when you go down to, uh, in the same chapter, it says, uh, if you look at verse uh, number... 
in Genesis chapter 1, and we look at uh, verse number 20, it says, And Elohim said that the water bring forth abundantly moving creatures that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament. And he made, in verse 21 says, And Elohim created whales and every living creature uh, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and every winged fowl after his kind. Okay. Then if you continue to Read on, read on down to verse 26, and it says, Elohim said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So what, what we are dealing with basically is the fact that in the plant world, the animal world, and the world in which we are human beings, mm-hmm. you, got, you got three sets here. You got three sets of things you're dealing with. The Plants reproduce it after their kind. The animals reproduce after their kind, and man reproduces after uh, his kind, which is basically when he was created, he was created after the image of Elohim. So the bodily parts of an animal to be substituted for the bodily parts of man mm-hmm. uh, is not after its kind. Mm. See, and so if it's not after its kind, mm-hmm. then it, it only means two things, that if you're trying to merge bodily parts of animals, which is not after your kind, you're in violation of the Torah because the Torah mm. is teaching you that if you're going to match it up, you're going to have to at least match it up with some uh, other human beings not uh, being that is not made after your kind. Then the next wow. thing that you're look, looking at is, is uh, uh, let us turn to uh, Genesis chapter 7. And here in Genesis chapter 7 and verse verse 2, okay. So here the Bible says, he's talking to Noah. He said, of every clean beast thou shalt take uh, to seven, the male and the, his female, and the beasts that are not clean to the male and his female. So what we're looking at here, that even before we get to the clean and unclean laws that Moses had articulated, nor had already been given the knowledge of the clean and the unclean. Mm-hmm. And he said, when you get on the ark, I'm gonna, you take seven of the clean, and then I want you to take two of the unclean, the male and the female. So that would meant that if you had pigs to go on the ark, you only had two, the male and the female. And if you had killed one, you would never would have had a pig today. Mm-hmm. Because those there were just only two of the unclean. Every unclean animal or insect it was only two that went on the ark, and those two had to mate in order to reproduce and and and, and to come forth. Wow. So what I'm saying is basically is, is that he gave man the Torah to know what to do mm-hmm. and what to eat, and also he gave uh, the plant world to be to man the type of medicine and the food that he need in order to sustain life. Therefore, if we're dealing with medicine and science and all of this, then if they have not studied the Torah and mm-hmm. the things that Elohim has said, what we are seeing today is what we call progressive medicine. Now, how does progressive medicine work? Well, it works this way. Okay, there are a lot of people, they like to take vitamins and herbs and stuff like that. And some people, they want to take, different nutrients and different products 
And when you read some of the products, they may say on this particular product, we have pork in it or we have shark cartilage. Now, when you look at the seafoods that we should eat and we shouldn't eat, the Bible said it must have fins and scales. So when you get a shark and you're eating shark cartilage and you're putting it into your body, what are you doing? Again, you're going against the Torah. The Torah said, don't put that in your body. Mm. So when you look at progressive medicine, what, 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 what is progressing? Well, the progress goes from shock cartilage or different things that they are putting in our vitamins and our minerals that should not be in there according to the Torah. So if you're putting it in there, what you are doing is you are giving things that are unclean into the body. So as you progress, then you say to yourself, if you are eating unclean things through your food and your vitamins and stuff and the GMO products, then you are taking it into your body. So as you continue to progress, then you go from your eating to also your bodily organs. So if you can eat unclean things, then they feel, well, hey, we can put unclean organs into their body as well. So you go from one stage to another. So pretty soon what we are having is, is that they are not only experimenting with our medicines and experiment with our food and experiment with our body parts. And it's pretty soon they're going to say, well, okay, since we have progressed to the point that we can take uh, different animal organs and put into our body, then maybe we could put a chip into their body and also have part of their body made out of m- mechanical devices and part of their bodies uh, human flesh. So they'll begin to experiment more and more, not just with prostasis and stuff, but and having artificial legs and artificial arms and stuff, but they're going to have people perhaps with artificial hearts mm-hmm. that is able to some degree to te- keep them living for maybe a certain period of time. So as we look at progressive medicine, they will be experimenting with a whole lot of other things. So if they are not studying the Torah, we can expect that when we go into these medical empires today, that is altogether different than 50 and, and 30 and 20 years ago. It's altogether different. Medicine has taken on a whole new uh, gamut. It's, it's different altogether. A lot of things that they are dealing with medicine today is not to cure you, yeah. but it is to just deal with your symptoms and to keep you coming over and over receiving certain type of drugs. If you read in the book of Revelation, it talks about drugs. It talks about pharmakia. Pharmakia means drugs that are being used in order to seduce people. Here in America... It's almost like we are a nation of so many drugs. Yeah. We could call this a drug addict nation. I don't think any other nation deals with more drugs than United States of America. And all of these drugs are making people addictive. You get one drug, you got to get another one. Pretty soon you own 17 different kinds of drugs. And this is why older people have to have younger people around them to make sure that they take in the right dosage because if they take too many, they have found out one of the main causes of seniors' death is because 
they are overusing drugs or using the drugs in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So when we take bodily parts and put it into uh, people, then it's a violation of Torah. And the Bible says that sin is a transgression of the law. And the word law means Torah. It's a transgression of the Torah. Wow. And, you know, you, you see a lot of that now because a lot of these pharmaceutical companies and medical companies have the title biotechnology, mm -hmm. which is basically bi biology merging with technology, human mm -hmm. and tech yeah. and all. You know, and I think, you know, just like I was saying earlier with a lot of these superhero movies and they show the merging of human and technology and stuff. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, a lot more of the beast and because, you know, it, it's interesting. They never show these animals where they supposedly got these organs. But for some reason, I don't feel it's just a regular pig. I think it's something they done mechanically or genetically made in a lab and messed with the DNA and the seed and whatnot mm. and all. But one, one qu last question I wanted to ask you too was um, in scripture, it speaks negatively about swine or the pig in several places. And I remember too, even amongst the Maccabees in the mm -hmm. book of the Maccabees, where it talks about the King wanted these, uh, sons to partake of swine and they wouldn't and he killed them mm -hmm. and we find in when Yah went to go heal the, this, the man who was had all these demons in him and they asked Yahusha could they go into the pigs and Yahusha told them yes and I was wondering was there any significance and I think you preached a sermon on this years ago but is there any significance why they chose the swine out of anything else? Well, one of the reasons... Hmm, right. No, I was done. No. Yeah, I think one of the reasons uh, the swine, uh, the swine is an unclean, it's, it's an unclean animal. Mm -hmm. And so when you got an unclean animal and then you had to have, have demons, mm -hmm. then a demon is considered an unclean spirit. So when you got an unclean spirit and an unclean animal, uh, then in many instances they 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 compensate one another. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, now when Yeshua was dealing with the Jewish farmers, uh, many of them they they were really possessed more so than the demoniacs or the men uh, that had lost. The, the demoniacs who had lost their minds and they, they were living in, in uh, out in the caves or somewhere. And every time somebody passed, they would frighten them. And so when Yeshua came along with his disciples, I think the disciples was kind of afraid too, but Yeshua confronted the demons. Mm -hmm. And then when he confronted them, they said, well, let, you know, suffer us to go in, into the herd of swine. Okay. Well, they could go into the herd of swine and then they could, uh, uh, be able to manifest themselves because see, in order for spirits to manifest themselves, they have to either be in a, in a body or they have to be in something else. Mm -hmm. So, so when they asked to go into the swine, then they know that that would be something that they could go into because they were saying, first of all, uh, have you come to torment us before our time? And this when he had to hush, hush and shut them up because, they knew him at eternity. See, they, they were up there before they had fallen, so they knew him. 
Yeah. And they they asked him the question. They say, are you come to torment us before a time? <laughs> so they so they know wow. that they're going to be uh, destroyed. They know that. Wow. But the only thing they want to know, they say, well, are you coming before your time to do it? Uh-huh. And so he said he suffered them to go in into the swine. So when they went into the swine, then they ran them off the cliff. Now, here's what was going on is that those uh, swine farmers, they were probably making good profit off the swine uh-huh. and because they was making good profit. Then they went and moved the whole city to show that Yeshua had healed these demoniacs, but he had ran all, he had allowed uh, these spirits to run these hogs into the water and drown and kill them. And he was messing with their business. Uh-huh. So they told the rest of the people, and when the rest of the people came out, if you read the story clearly, it says that they wanted him to leave. They wanted Yeshua to get out of there. Uh-huh. Not because he was doing anything wrong, but because he was interfering with their business. Mm. Okay. And so they were possessed with making money, mm-hmm. but they were doing it in an unclean manner. Now, here's what Isaiah says. Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, and if you look at the 17th verse in Isaiah 66, 17, it says, they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the garden behind one tree in the mist, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together, said Yehoah. Okay, uh-huh. so in Isaiah, he's talking about two things. He's talking about the swine, and he's talking about the mouse. So when you talk about the swine, you're talking about the pigs, and when you talk about the mouse, you're talking about rats. Uh-huh. In other words, if you eat swine, you might as well be eating a rat. They unclean. Wow. Now, here's what I want to point out in closing is this. You say, why did they go into the swine? Here's why they went into the swine. Okay. Now, if you notice that Elohim has a dietary law. Yeah. Okay. And in that dietary law, what you have is you have uh, among the plants, there are certain things you can eat and don't eat, such as you got poison plants as well as wholesome plants. So mm-hmm. you have to make a distinction, you know, just like people talking about uh, recreation, marijuana, heroin, and different type of uh, poison herbs. Well, Elohim makes a distinction between the good herbs and the herbs that you shouldn't eat, okay? And then he makes a distinction between the sea animals and uh, that you can't eat and can't eat, and also the insects, which you can eat and can't eat, and also of the land animals, which you can and you can't eat. So when you get to the land animals of the things that you can and cannot eat, then what happens is, is that Elohim has a diet. And his diet says, if you eat the clean meat, then that is in harmony with the Torah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you eat unclean meats like the swine or the mouse, then that's against the Torah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So now you have to stop and think, who's the one that is encouraging you to eat the unclean. Well, logically, you know, it's the forces that is behind that, which is Satan. Mm-hmm. So Satan is saying to the people, uh, to, 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 Satan is saying to the evil angels that if you want to subsist and to do my will, then you eat or go into the swine because they are filthy just like you are. Mm-hmm. 
it, it matches you. Just like Elohim saying, if you want to be clean, then you eat the clean, clean animals. So if they, if they would, <clears throat> if they want to subside and to be uh, what he wants them to be, then if I'm on Elohim side, then I'm going to get a clean diet. But if I'm on the Satan side, then I'm going to get the unclean diet. So the best place for them to go was not to into the clean, but into the unclean. And so when they went into the unclean, then they were fulfilling that which Satan wants them to do rather than what Elohim wanted them to do. Oh, wow. Very deep indeed. Well, before we close this out, Pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer? Okay. I love it, Father. Again, we thank you for the privilege of being able to discuss our word and to be able to go into your word. And most of all, that your word may go into us and land the foundation, O Heavenly Father, building a life that we can walk in obedience to the Torah. For we realize, Lord, that men of scientific backgrounds and men in the medical field, those who have degrees in all type of sciences, O Heavenly Father, but yet they have not been able to pursue the Torah and to understand the science in which you have given. For you are the greatest scientist, O Heavenly Father, because you created all things. And until they come back to the Torah, they will be experimenting with all types of things in order to defame the human body. And there are many, O Heavenly Father, who will be going to these doctors because they have not searched the Torah. And as a result, they will be subjects, O Heavenly Father, to man's medicine. And also they'll be able to profit somewhat from man medicine. But in the end, man medicine, O Heavenly Father, will be the deterrent of their lives from the true Elohim. And as a result, they will find themselves living in a world of transgression and iniquity. So we ask that as we come back to the true Torah and as we continue to study it, that we can understand the things that he has for the human body. Sometimes it might be better to lay down this life and doing the right thing than to prolong our lives doing the wrong thing. So help us to make the decision in the way that you would have us to and give us the grace to be able to stand and to do the things that the Torah has given to us. Because when Yeshua died on the cross, he was dying, O Heavenly Father, for those of us who have broken the Torah, that we may be able to be restored. And once we are restored back to the Torah, then we walk the life of the Torah, which is the life of Yeshua the Messiah. Now we ask that you would continue to bless, keep guide, and direct us. Remember the host of the program. Remember me. Remember those who listen. Remember all of those, O Heavenly Father, who are sick and shed in, those who have suffered loss, loss of loved ones, O Heavenly Father, that thou would continue to comfort their hearts and give them the necessary strength and energy to carry on with the loss of loved ones. And now, Father, as we continue throughout the Shabbat, we ask that the blood of Yeshua may continue to cleanse us and make us pure, sanctify us, that we may have sanctified lives to be able to match, uh, match the Holy Sabbath, which is a sanctified day. And with a sanctified life and a sanctified day, we may get a sanctified blessing. So bless, keep God and direct us this day. And when we go into the new week, may we be refreshed and recreated enough that our bodies, O Heavenly Father, and our minds, and our spirit may be refreshed enough to be able to carry out another week to look forward to another Sabbath. These blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua, and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. 
We hope you not only study the Bible when listening to this podcast, but we encourage you on a daily that you study your Bible outside of listening to this podcast, because as it states in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, study to show thyself approved unto Elohim, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We should study to know the scriptures for ourselves and not to just listen to just one or a group of people, because the only way we can know the truth from error is through studying and searching the scriptures and letting y'all lead us. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. We look forward to seeing you next week at our next live stream. But the mercy of Yahuwah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness to understand until his children's children to such that guard his covenant and to those that remember his commandments and do them. Until next week, Shabbat Shalom.